and this is the Phil File. And we hope you're having a very special Christmas because now it's time for the Film File Festive Edition. Hello and welcome to The Film File. My name's Andy and we're taking a break from our regular shows for the next couple of weeks. We'll be returning with the usual mix of news, reviews, neat things and chat within the new year. But in the meantime, we're taking the opportunity to cast our eyes back over the past year in films and pick out our list of, well, the official Film File top 10 films to see from 2022. Brackets in no particular order, close brackets. We say in no particular order because when it comes to narrowing down your top films, we always find it hard to say what's our number one film, what's our number two, and it'll change from day to day. So we think it's a lot easier just to pick out 10 films that we feel represent the best of cinema and streaming for 2022. How easy was it to narrow down the list? Because surely there's not that many films come out. Well, when you consider that on the show, we review... On average, three new films each week, and we've done 52 episodes. That's over 150 new releases over the past year. So with the hundreds of films that are released, my top five pick was certainly going to be tricky to narrow down. But thankfully, Lee jumped in first and selected five films that he wanted to recommend, which made my job easier because we overlapped on a couple of films. So the eight or so films that I wanted to mention that I consider high scoring five out of five films were narrowed down a little bit more to make it easier for me to pick my five. We're going to get to my five next week because this week we're focusing on Lee's picks in no specific order. Take a journey with us as we take a look back at five top picks from Lee, and listen back to what we said on the show at the time that they were released. So a recent pick that comes from Lee, and it's now available to watch on Disney+, Plus, is The Banshees of Inner Sheeran. One film that has been something that we've both seen, and uh, I think I can say now will probably be in our film of the year list, has got to be this movie. Why aren't you talking to Porrid no more? Colin? That wouldn't be a sin now, would it, Father? No, but it's not very nice either. From writer-director Martin McDonough, Banshees is hilariously dark. Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson are one of the all-time great on-screen pairings. There's two of us in this. No, there isn't. It takes two to tango. I don't want to tango. They danced with your dog. The Banshees of Inisherin. Yes, the Banshees of Inisherin. Uh, Return to the screen of Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, directed by Martin McDonough, who gave us in Bruges. It's the film pairing that I don't think we ever thought we were going to see again, but I'm so glad that they teamed up one more time. Uh, For this story set in a small Irish island of Inishirin back in 1923, two friends, Patrick, played by Farrell, and Calm, played by Gleeson, have been friends for as long as anyone can clearly remember. But one day, as a civil war rages on mainland Ireland, Calm suddenly announces that his friendship is over. Patrick is confused. In fact, he's devastated. And while Calm starts taking incredibly drastic measures to keep the friendship closed. Yes, on the surface, Banshees of Inishirin is a dark comedy about broken friendship and regrets at paths not trodden. With Calm's reason, for breaking the friendship being that he's reflected on the time that he's wasted with the boring pad. The things that he could have done instead have been weighing on his mind, such as creating music. It's clear when watching it 
that Colm is also going through mental anguish, severe depression, and the, sadly, the community around him don't quite identify it because this film is, after all, set in the earlier 20th century. So it's just seen as, oh, a bit of eccentric behaviour. But it's this time setting of this film that makes it even more significant. Because not only is it set in the early 20th century, like you said, it's set in 1923, the time of the Irish Civil War, which saw bloody conflict between friends and families. Brother turned against brother, friends turned against neighbour. And the reminder of that is present within the film, which plays the sudden break of Coleman Pad's bond as a quite dark analogy of those times. There's a logic to the friendship breakdown, but it still doesn't make it make any sense, just like there was a logic to why the Civil War t- took place, but it still didn't make much sense. There's times when it looks like the pair will reconcile, and the parallels with hist- historical events make us realise that maybe they'll never reconcile because things never got right again in the Irish, Irish mainland. Banshees is dark. It's very dark, but... Man, it's wickedly funny. This is one of the few films where I have laughed out loud with tears in my eyes than to be replaced with tears in my eyes because of the tragedy that's going on between these two men. I can honestly say I don't think Colin Farrell has been better than he has been in this film. And his relationship with Brendan Gleeson's calm is just, it's it's a chalk and cheese relationship the former uh, Colin Farrell's Patrick is is just a simple soul who can blab on for hours about nothing including uh, his horse's poo uh, and while Brendan Gleeson's character is is a, a deep thinker he he wants a legacy this is a a film about despair and 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 legacy and wanting to live on he writes music plays a fiddle uh, and as you said he he falls into uh, into despair, existential despair at times. It's a beautiful relationship. And as, as I said, at times, unabashedly funny, ridiculously funny, silly even. And then it's it's just uh, uh, amazingly tragic and touching. We get to fall in love with a donkey, <laughs> mm. um, which is, is Padrick's only other friend. Padrick is a, is, a, is a lonely man and a simple man who sees everything in in sort of black and whites and this gray area that he has to face is, is something um is something unheard of to him. him yeah it's confused, confused him and yet um calm is is depressed by the sense of of, of time slipping away and, and wants to do something about it leave a creative legacy for whatever years he has left uh, and that's why he's decided to cut padrick out of his life ridding himself of he describes aimless chatting of a limited man. There's so many themes within this and they're explored. Familial abuse, depression, dependence, loneliness, suicide, everything that you can think would really drag a film down and make you just walk out hating it because it'd be so depressive is in there, but you don't hate it. It's so, so subtly and smartly played throughout that you can't help but walk out feeling that you've not only just had a great bunch of laughs, but also you've got a lot of things to think of. And it's just hits you for a six. The casting is what makes it. I mean, you've spent you've mentioned Gleason and Farrell, who Farrell, like I agree with you, he's on his finest performance of all time here. He really is the most likable character in his simple, confusing state. But the support cast around them. 
Barry Keegan, yeah. who pops up as Dominic, the son of the island's policeman, who initially comes across as vulgar and coarse, but through the film, you it peels layers off his character to add depth to him. And you start to really care about his simple life as well. It's, it's such... beautifully, beautifully portrayed. Barry Keegan is such a talented young actor. Popped up in Eternals and, and uh, was, was strong in it, but didn't really stand out. But in this, it is just a mesmeric performance. You want to strangle him and love him at the same time. And and that's what I've, I've, I talk about this film. There are there's so many other grey areas. I mean, he, he dreams of escaping his brutish father who abuses him. He wants to find he wants to find love as well. And then we've got to talk about Kerry Condon, who, again, we've yeah. seen her in an awful lot, including Better Call Saul. And, and again, she's never been better than she has in this film. As yep. as uh, as Siobhan uh, Padrick's smarter sister. Yep, the the one who realizes that life on the island will never change from what it is, with people just wanting gossip, nothing really connected to reality, and she wants a better life and can't decide whether to take that opportunity to head for that better life on the mainland, where, as we're reminded multiple times, civil war is breaking out, and she sees that as an option from the peaceful. Poss- like slight existence on the island it's a beautifully layered film one of the strongest films of the year with yeah. so many layers to unpack poignant disturbing angst riddled a tale of friendship gone wrong tragic. or something more it's a perfect tragedy mcdonough takes a perfect tragedy and also makes a perfect comedy at the same time and it takes some skill as a writer and director to get anywhere near the right balance there, but he does it with absolute perfection. I totally agree. Now, earlier this year, the multiverse was everywhere. We had Doctor Strange with the Multiverse of Madness, but hot on its heels came a film that I think both myself and Lee agree tackled the multiverse in a much more creative, fun, engaging, and heartfelt emotional way. That film is Lee's next pick, and that's Everything Everywhere, all at once, which is now available to watch on Amazon Prime. If you've not seen it, get it on your radar. But I do believe in one part of the multiverse, not only have I seen all of these films, but I'm the one reviewing them. (laughs) Tell me, Andy, because you know how much I've been dying to see this film. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Is it the film I'm hoping it should be? Mom, just wait. No time to wait. Very busy. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. If you can imagine it, somewhere out there, it exists. The universe is bigger than you realize. Do you think this is funny? There's no going back. Of all the places I could be, I just want to be here with you. Now, this is a film that takes some dissecting as it delivers exactly what the title suggests. Everything. Genuinely laugh out loud, funny at points, marvellously inventive action scenes, a confusing but in a good way plotline, a heartfelt drama about family and conflict, and a thesis on existentialism. There's so much going on that at the end of the film, I knew I'd seen something really special, but could only initially post a one-word review. Wow. 
Michelle Yeoh is front and centre in a role that sees her do pretty much everything, getting a chance to really play every approach as she plays Evelyn Wang, a mother who's struggled to live up to her father's expectations, whilst also struggling to allow her own daughter, Joy, to become her own entity. With a marriage that is strained, her husband, Waymond, is seeking divorce. All of her home worries suddenly pale into insignificance when her husband suddenly acts a little strange, insisting he's been taken over by another version from another multiverse, and only the pair of them can prevent a dark evil from destroying all reality. From that point onwards, Evelyn begins to find her importance in the multiverse while still trying to fix the problems in her own timeline. The energy of this film kicks in pretty early, and it doesn't let up as we're rapidly introduced to the concept of multiverse and the bizarre manner in which you can tap into other versions of your life by doing something a little strange and out of, out of sorts. The stranger the act, the more likely the success in jumping between realities. And the result is a film which, at times, is so insanely crazy that you'll find yourself rupturing with laughter right before it hits you with an emotional moment of reflection. You see, even though this is an action-packed comedy, it knows exactly when to slow down a little and let us feel and care for everyone. And this includes the being that's responsible for trying to destroy the realities. We are let a chance to care. The film looks amazing and far exceeds the expectations of a 25 million budget. Unlike many higher budgeted action outings, the money here has been spent perfectly, but never at the expense of the story. This is no mindless multiverse venture. This is, as mentioned at the head of the review, a study of existentialism and family, which will leave you emotionally impacted and contemplating the impact that you can make on the lives of others around you. Find a cinema near you showing this right now and get a ticket booked. You know how a few weeks ago, after seeing The Northman, I said, I've just seen the five out of five film of the year for me yes. and nothing's going to beat it. The Northman is now my second favourite film of the year. Wow. Because everything everywhere all at once blow me away. I don't know if you've seen the clip on YouTube of Michelle Yeoh talking about being cast in this film. Uh, by Wait, Is it the one where she breaks down in tears? Yeah, and she breaks down in yeah. tears because she never thought she would be offered anything like this. And it's just it's just such a touching moment to see her a career validated that, you know, other people saw for, for being more than just a, a, an action star. And she's always been more than just mm. an action star. Everything she's done, she she delivers a fantastic performance, even down to Star Trek Discovery, where, you know, she was she was in a multiverse in that one as well. Yeah. Uh, she, she's an amazing screen presence. I certainly will be going to see this film. And as I said, somewhere else in the multiverse, I've already seen it. And in another multiverse, I'm in it. Early in the year, Pixar delivered a film that didn't get a huge amount of response when it landed, but it built up an audience pretty swiftly. That film is the coming-of-age animated tale, Turning Red, which you can catch on Disney+. Plus. This is what we thought of it. Andy, kick off with the film that I haven't seen. So that film is Pixar's latest entry, Turning Red, that landed on Disney+, Plus this week. I'm Maylin Lee. I wear what I want, say what I want. I'm all about the hustle. Streaming March 11th on Disney+. Plus. It's a lot. And any strong emotion. Uh, May? Why are you staring at Carter Murphy Mayhew? We'll release the panda. Oh, my God. 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 O
Stars turning red. Rated PG. Original movie streaming March 11th. Only on Disney+. Plus. Mei Li is a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian student who struggles to fit in as it is, with dedication to family matters often interfering with her relationship with friends and her obsessing over the boy band Fortown. However, things get even more complicated as she hits the change. And by which, I mean she finds out that she's transforming into a giant red panda whenever she gets emotional. But with her transformation comes a new opportunity to be accepted by her peers, but at the potential risk of everything else. As you'd expect from Pixar, the animation in this is superb. The level of detail that they add to textures and environments really do highlight why they are the jewel in the crown of animation studios. In addition, with a couple of notable exceptions, Pixar know how to create a good story with a strong emotional core, and this is one of their strongest. The family-friends balance that all teens find themselves confronted with, along with other aspects of coming of age, are handled so deftly. Sharply humorous misunderstandings, sometimes slapstick humour and witty asides are layered throughout but never upset or get in the way of the solid core story. We can all relate to aspects of May's position in life. We've all been young teens, awkwardly stumbling around in an attempt to be accepted and embarrassed by the actions of our parents and ourselves. And this makes the film connect with adults on an emotional core, whilst the vibrant images and fun will engage the younger audiences. This is yet another solid outing for Pixar, and it's such a huge disappointment that it's been buried onto the streaming platform as opposed to a joyous cinema release that it much richly deserves. It was a a, a toss-up in our house because we were going away, which film we were going to watch. And, and funny, that was my first choice. So I think when we finish this recording, it'll be tonight's, uh, tonight's viewing. So by this time uh, the, the show's come out, I'll have seen this. The Predator franchise became somewhat of a joke over the years. There might not have been a huge amount of films within the franchise, but when it was last seen on the big screen with The Predator, it was seen as the last gasping breath of a dying series of films. Thankfully, Disney Plus brought us Prey, which stripped things back to the bare bones, got it back in touch with the franchise's foundations, and delivered possibly maybe the second best Predator film. But it's highly possible that over rewatches, this might actually become my favourite. So Andy has been doing the Lord's work in light of watching The Omen uh, and seen <laughs> plenty of movies, as I said earlier. I've not had a chance to watch anything due to this uh, issue that I've got and I, the fact that I can't see <laughs> has made it um, absolutely um, so difficult to want to go and watch anything. I'm having real problems. But I did because I felt I had to, I felt I had to contribute, but I was gagging to see the latest Predator movie on Disney Plus, Prey. Why do you want to hunt? Because you all think that I can't. I saw a sign in the sky. I'm ready. There's something out there. I'm trying to protect you. Take me from what? Whatever did this, I can kill it. So the fifth in the Predator series, if you don't, and why should you include Aliens versus Predators? Because why not? Predator kicked off in 1987 under directors John McTiernan's basically muscle fest, a platoon of oiled up muscle men with biceps bigger than my legs, Freudian uber guns, taking out uh, an alien invader and it's much much loved of course there were sequels uh, which 
to me, the second one was really darn good. Yes, there's an ex-girlfriend of mine in it, and that's always difficult. <laughs> makes it difficult to watch in our household. But uh, I've got a lot of love for uh, Predator 2. I've even got love for Predators. I've never mm. seen The Predator because you, Andy, told me never to watch it. Uh, and that brings us round to Prey. We talked about Prey ages back, uh, that it was going to land on Disney+. And it has done so this week. So to earn her stripes as uh, a warrior, Comanche hunter Naru, played by Amber Midthunder, must take on the ritual and bring down a particularly dangerous beast. Unbeknownst to her, though, she and her tribe are themselves being hunted by a predator. I got a chance to watch this yesterday, and I didn't see it in the best way because I had to keep stopping it every sort of half an hour because, um, I, as I said, I can't see properly. But boy, was I knocked out. I've heard a lot of people talk about this being the second best Predator. And I'm going to equal that out with being as good as Predator 2. But I had such a great time with this. Yeah, me too. Stripping the Predator series back to a simple tale of hunters against another hunter takes it back to what made that first film stand out. Only this time they haven't got like big machine guns and grenades and bombs. It's bows arrows and various like handmade traps. Dan Trachtenberg keeps it simple, makes very great use of bloody effects, and I love the new creature design of the Predator. It's familiar, but with some nice additions to the design that make it feel almost new as a concept. Amber Midthunder, absolutely magnificent throughout. And she was great in Legion, weren't she? Yeah, in Legion she was fantastic. So, you know, we were knowing what to expect that she can deliver. But she holds the film together perfectly. Uh, her character's plight to prove her worth as a hunter, her slowly developing skills and her way of looking for unique ways to use weapons plays out in a believable manner, which means that the final act feels as natural a flow as the final act in the original film was. And it follows the same beats. Yes, you could say that it's not original. It's too close to the original film to stand on its own. But you know what? I think after the last few films have kind of taken the franchise in weird directions, and I'm talking about the Predator and the Aliens vs. Predator films here. We need it to be stripped back to the bare bones to remind us how good Predator can actually be. This reminded me more of the Dark Horse comic run than it did mm. anything else, you know, by taking it back 300 years to America's colonial past. So uh, we have, as you said, the great Amber Midthunder as Nauru. Uh, she's a competent Comanche fighter and hunter who flatly rejects her people's notion of, of a woman's role. And therefore, you see what we didn't get a lot of the time with the Predator movies. You saw, you see a fantastic arc uh, and you see this, this one woman take down a Predator in the most cunning ways that she can. And as you said, the, the Predator's been re redesigned to a degree without losing the impact of what we know what the Predator looks like. So let's do something different with the looks and you've we got away from the kind of the muscle man predator that we saw to something that's a lean mean killing machine again mm. if there was any disappointment watching this film initially it was the disappointing aspect of having to watch it on the small screen i thought to myself when the film was starting oh i'd love to have seen this on the yeah there were some really big wide shots weren't, weren't there that sort of set the scene of of, uh, of that part of the u.s back in those days but then when when some ropey CGI animals kind of popped up and showed that it had a very restrictive budget, 
I felt I felt at that point that on the big screen they would have been far too jarringly obvious and might have distracted from the quality of storytelling and presentation that was going on. So I actually feel that this suits streaming more than the big screen. I know working in the cinema industry that should be sacrilege, but um, you know sometimes something does sit well on the small screen. And in addition, this showcases, and this is something that we all, every time that we talk about a Netflix 200 million budgeted yeah. big action film. Looking at you, the grey man. They're always inevitably disappointing. And so you've generally got this perception that anything going straight to streaming is going to be garbage. But this has shown what something going to streaming can actually be. And seeing the buzz out there online from the Twitter sphere and Letterbox, etc. People are talking about this in a way that no one talked about the previous Predator film when it got released at the box office. This has generated a buzz because everyone's got access to it. Everyone's got a chance to see it and people are getting a chance to appreciate it. If this had gone to the cinemas, if this had been on the box office, I reckon half of the people who've watched it this weekend would not have gone to see it. I've got to agree. I think I think it's by being so pared down, by taking that risk of not having a big name, by having a female-led character, by the period piece setting, they had a better chance of exploring that with this Hulu because it was designed for Hulu in the US and we got it on Disney Plus. They've they've had that ability to take chances with a smaller budget and and a a much leaner story again. Yeah, it's a cracking film. I was engrossed throughout and I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Um, There's nods to the earlier entries scattered within a line of dialogue here or a, a certain kind of trap design there, even a particular pistol. Um, and the film plays well as a legacy sequel worthy of the franchise over the end credits at the start of the end credits there's animated retail well there's a, a kind of like cave drawing painting kind of retelling of the story of the film worth watching because there's a little addition just at the end of that yes i saw it um, and we won't give it away so no. this is a thoroughly entertaining familiar and yet still fresh take on on the classic Predator, brought up to date for 2022. And a great example of, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Go back to Mm. what makes Predator films work. So uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, against all expectations. About equal to me for Predator 2, Andy, but uh, I've got to mention that that Amber Mid-Thunder just is a great screen presence and had a damn good time with this. Absolutely recommended. Everyone should get this checked out. And if you want to check out the other Predator films, uh, they're all available on Disney Plus as well. I'll be there. Maybe not Predator 2 because it causes too many arguments in our household. (laughs) Lee's last pick is one that is slightly controversial when it comes to the show because it's a film that relies on nostalgia throughout, which is something that kind of bothered me, but it's something that Lee really embraced. There's no denying, though, that this is on many people's top lists of the year because how much it took at the box office and how much of a response it got critically and from the public showcases exactly what love there is for Tom Cruise in Top Gun. Top Gun Maverick is now showing on Paramount+, Plus. so if you've not had a chance to see what it's all about, check it out. I enjoyed it. But here's what we both thought about it when we spoke about it on the shows this year. So Top Gun Maverick. What do we have here? Yeah, here I thought we were special. Fellas, this here's Bagman. Hangman. Whatever. What the hell kind of mission is this? Everyone 
everyone here is the best there is. Who the hell are they gonna get to teach us? Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations. What the hell? Good morning, aviators. This is your captain speaking. And we're off. Here we go. In three, two, one. We're going into combat on a level no living pilot's ever seen. Not even him. You think up there you're dead. Believe me. My dad believed in you. I'm not gonna make the same mistake. Someone's not coming back from this. Jeez! Having any fun yet? Let's make something clear from the offset. I like the original Top Gun, but not to the degree that many others seem to worship it. Even on its initial release, I thought it was okay, but that's about it. While school buddies at the time were obsessed. So on that basis, I wasn't really hyped for this sequel, but was interested to see it, particularly because Joseph Kaczynski knows how to deliver on visual thrills, as demonstrated in Tron Legacy and Oblivion, and Tom Cruise is generally one worth watching for thrills and spectacle. The reviews then started flooding out two weeks ago, gushing over the film, some marking it as the best film of 2022, and they built up hopes with comments saying it was better than the original, or that you don't have to see or like the original to enjoy this film. And sadly, for me, that wasn't the case. I found the film to rank just as highly as the first. It's enjoyable, but not the high-octane thrill ride others are feeling. Don't get me wrong, there's elements of this film handled so much better than the original. Story, for example, the original film was very slapdash story-wise. Top fighter pilots recruited to prove their worth and be the best of the best. And then they throw in a random mission at the end. Add melodrama and 80s rock tracks. Boom, there you've got your film. Now the story feels a bit more thought through. With the new bunch of flying aces are being specifically trained for a deadly mission that will test all their abilities. There's a reason for the training that isn't just a competition to see who's the best. There's melodrama again, this time the emotional burden that Maverick has carried over the decades through feeling responsible for Goose's death and how he further tried to stop Goose's son from following his father's path. But overall, the general story is pretty much a retread of what we've already seen in the first film. The team train. Accidents occur. Conflict arises between the group, which adds pressure, and then a mission at the end that heals any broken bonds. But... What about the action? After all, one factor that audiences loved in the original was the jet fights themselves. And here, they are ramped up even higher and feel more real with huge impact from the big screen and the booming speakers. The thrill is high whenever an engine fires to life and you feel the force of each aerial manoeuvre as they happen. It looks as polished and stunning as you would expect from Kaczynski and will certainly appeal to the action-hungry fans out there. 
The inclusion of Val Kilmer is well handled and offers an element of poignant reflection, not just on his character of Iceman, but also on the actor himself. It adds a layer of heart to the journey of Maverick as he finally starts to reconcile the demons from his past that have held him back for decades. But overall, it is just a Top Gun film and how much you enjoy it will depend entirely on how much you enjoyed the first film. A good sequel that seems to rely on the nostalgia a little too much and new audiences may be confused as some elements as a result, much as they did with the recent Ghostbusters Afterlife. Only that film actually seemed to draw on the nostalgia for the right reasons. This film does it, sometimes, for what seems to be pure lazy reasons. It's fun, but far from the shining glory that we've been led to believe. So I've yet to see this, and I do really want to see it. I'm I'm very interested to see this. But do you think it's garnering the great reviews because of the nostalgia factor, or for people who weren't around when Top Gun first appeared? Because, let's be honest, who really ever wanted a Top Gun sequel? That this is uh, a, a kind of filmmaking that's that's bravado filmmaking. It's pure bravado filmmaking. The reviews that are gushing over it being better than the original, it's not. The review, I think there's, there is a huge nostalgia factor in there, and it is the people who have grown up loving the original film who are going in and loving this. And no doubt, if you liked or loved whatever you thought of the original Top Gun, you will love this one for exactly the same reasons. I thought the original Top Gun was okay. It was enjoyable. And I think that this is okay. It's enjoyable. But it's nothing more. As mentioned at the top end of the programme, I finally got to see Top Gun Maverick. Andy, I know you liked it. We discussed whether it would be the film of the summer. And it seems that it is the film of the summer. Um, I've discussed this on on the BBC a couple of weeks ago and this need for nostalgia. We talked about uh, Jurassic World and we talked about this and why this has been the film. Because this is, you know, 35 years since Top Gun came out and was really uh, an ideological film of its time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing that this has caught the public's attention. Uh, rather than tell you, uh, yes, I did enjoy the film. I thought it was great. And rather than go through the plot, because Andy's already done that, it's it's talking about why this film has been so successful. Uh, I like the fact that it's almost the flight plan of the original film. Mm-hmm. It's almost that the last act is the attack on the Death Star. Um, <laughs> I like it. I think it's very clever how it's a film that sets a ticking time bomb all the way through because you're given what the scenario is for the entire length of the film. You're given the mission on whether these guys are going to complete the mission or are people going to fail. I thought it had got heart. I thought the scene with Val Kilmer uh, made me well up. Yeah. Uh, I thought I thought it was incredibly touching. There was a couple of times in the, in the film, you know, the film starts out. It could be the Tony Scott movie, you know, slow-mo uh, fighter planes landing. And then it's got Tom Cruise, who is just magnetic. It's a bit like he's aged, but he's aged so incrementally that you hardly notice unless you were to put the two films back to back. I mean, he looks phenomenal for a man who's who's just about to hit 60. It's got heart. It's got the kind of cinema that needs to be seen on a big screen. I mean, I think I figured out how they did a lot of the flying sequences. But boy, they, they, they put you up there. It feels real. It's mm. bravado filmmaking. I think it's that kind of... We know a couple of things. We must be looking at CGI, but we feel as though we are in the cockpit with those characters, and it is done so well. Also, because we know that Tom Cruise does his own stunts and that he will make it as real as possible 
We know that because he's getting thrown into space for his next movie. <laughs> Absolutely enjoy- I loved it. I-, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I think it's it's a great nostalgic summer movie that you don't have to go back and and see the original film, which makes it makes it even more intriguing as to why this has been the biggest hit of the summer so far. Yeah, I liked it. Didn't love it. Liked it. And I think it is. It's one of the freshest blockbuster movies of recent years. It, like you say, it feels real. The stunt work is really well done. And the heart to the story, I agree with you entirely on the Val Kilmer aspect. Really well handled and a really good way to insert him into there. Referencing his own problems through his character. Absolute, absolutely had me welling up on the touching moments between the two in that film. Yeah, it needs to be seen on the big screen. Yeah, I think that this would lose the impact on the small screen, especially when those jet engines kick in and you feel the bass throw you back into the seat and then Danger Zone rips rips out. Man, if you're not banging your head at that point, then there's something seriously wrong with you. Because for a film that's, that's over 35 years old, this can't be just a nostalgia rush. There must be people coming to this film for the very first time who've not seen Top Gun. Yeah. Who've come to it fresh, uh, and maybe even heard of Top Gun, but have come to this because it is uh, more than a retread, I think, uh, Kaczynski has always delivered great visuals, also very realistic looking uh, visuals in all of his films. And it's slick uh, and it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a positive movie in the same way that the other one is. It gets you punching the air. Uh, I think the, 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 the one element that I really liked about it is they took away the militaristic aspect, which I had a problem with, with Top Gun. It was, uh, it was basically uh, a Ronald Reagan wet dream. And I always had, yeah. due to being a, a lefty woke liberal <laughs> that that element uh, went through it and i think they 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 handled it uh perfectly in this film so uh he's got a surprising emotional bash tom cruise is just a magnetic film star this is the film of the summer so far now not everything has been a shining gem or even an average experience this year And regular listeners to the show will know there's been a handful of times which have led to a less than favourable review from myself and often a few running gags over the episodes. I mean, the words of Sky Original instantly let you know what I think of a film. One such low-rated film this year was a relatively high-profile one at the same time. Comic book movies are generally a mixed bag, but no matter how average films such as Doctor Strange and Black Adam are, they're certainly masterpieces when compared to the Sony-verse of comic book movies. And this year, we got the majesty that was Morbius. Yes, folks, it's Morbin time. Anyway, it's now time for the reviews. Andy said the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, are we going to go in that order? Are we going to go for the ugly? It's up to Andy because he <laughs> has done the Lord's work this week. Done what many have feared was going to be a train wreck of a movie. I think Andy has, uh, has been a passenger on that train wreck just to bring you this week's review. We'll get going. Taking a Z-list villain and sometimes anti-hero from the comics and making a movie about them is sometimes met with derision and sneers. With little recognition of the character outside comic fandom, why would studios think there's a market? However, films such as Guardians of the Galaxy and Suicide Squad showed that lesser known doesn't necessarily mean bad. Then, along comes a film like Morbius to make you think again. I'd do anything to save a life. I want to see you get hurt more than you already have. This would be a cure. At what cost? You did it. You found a cure. Not exactly. I can't control it. Michael, stop! All allies, 
lives we've lived with death. Why shouldn't they know what it feels like for a change? Just accept who you are. The bad guy. Morbius, a new Marvel legend arrives only in cinemas. Following the formula laid down by the Venom films, take a character, give them powers, give someone else the same powers, make them fight in a CG battle. This is another Sony entry into their Spider-Man universe, albeit with barely any linking tissue to Spider-Man, despite what those bait-and-switch trailers would have led you to believe. In it, we meet Dr. Michael Morbius, a brilliant mind in a withering body, seeking a way to cure his ailments and prolong his life. He finds it via combining the DNA of a rare breed of vampire bat with his own, and finds that as a side effect, he is granted fantastical powers, but a hunger for blood that consumes him. As he seeks a cure, an old friend suffering the same condition poses a threat to him, his closest companions, and indeed, the world. Cue, excitement, action, or maybe not. I've left films through the years in varied states of emotion. Excitement, joy, heartbreak, disappointment, anxious, thrilled, upset, depressed, but rarely have I left a film as the credits rolled in a state of anger. I think the last time that that happened was when I made the mistake of watching Paul Blart Mall Cop. Well, Morbius left me absolutely livid. Barely coherent in structure, it's evident how much of this film has been savaged by the scattershot nature of the storytelling. From the offset, the intelligence of the audience was insulted, with Morbius, played by Leto, getting off a helicopter and struggling to walk with his canes, only for someone who's been with him on the whole journey to only then notice that he has a medical condition and comment on it, clearly throwing the line in so that audiences can then benefit from being told what the medical condition is, because we needed that prompt, even if it's so bizarre that you'd make the comment there and then. We're then given some hand-fisted dialogue about bats that they intend to catch and how they can strip large beasts to bone in seconds, only to then have a veritable cloud of said bats fly around everyone without actually, you know, harming anyone. Within those minutes, I realised this film was going to spend just over an hour and a half insulting my intelligence. The level of unnatural dialogue exchanges to shoehorn exposition in, possibly to cover up the cracks left after the editing process, clearly removed chunks of the actual film continued from that point onwards, delivered by a cast who are either phoning it in or hammily overplaying it all. Hello, Matt Smith. The child actors in the early moments are dreadful, maybe deliberately so, in order to make the adult cast look better as a result. Every word spoken throughout made me grate my teeth more and more through the sheer banality of it all. But hey, this is a comic book movie, so you're here for the action, yeah? If so, prepare to be disappointed as the stylized action is all high-speed blurry images of colour with no substance to them, which seem to crash and smash through things, but I can't quite recall how. Every now and then, the film tries to be cool and slows down for an almost comic book panel freeze-frame moment, which instead of looking impressive, actually allows you a moment to see how shockingly bad the CGI elements are. This is CGI effects work, the like of which we witnessed in films like I Am Legend, embedded into a superhero film that could have come straight out of the late 90s. I did go into this wanting to find some positive to draw from the film. I always try to find some positive in even the worst of films, but I genuinely couldn't find any enjoyment through this whole diabolical mess. Even the musical score, overblowing and imposing as it is, hammered me down more and more as the film played out. By the time the final battle, and by battle I mean streaks of wavy lines with some blurry mass in the middle, came around and it brought the whole thing to a lacklustre confusion. I was angry. I was angry at the filmmakers for daring to try to associate this with Marvel. I was angry at the cast for not even trying. I was angry at the studio for their clear interference in the film and reshoots to force elements in. I was angry at the bait and switch of those trailers that represented a completely different film. 
but mostly I'm angry at myself for watching this when there's so many other films that I haven't seen. Without Marvel themselves involved, Sony clearly are clamouring to churn out things half-baked. And with the Craven film going into production, a character that deserves much better treatment than what Venom and now Morbius have been given. Well, that just makes me angrier. This is the kind of comic book movie that sets comic book movies back decades. I suppose the law of averages says that we have to have bad ones every now and then, but does it have to be from the same studio each time? So I'm guessing that you're angry with this <laughs> film, Andy. I don't know what it is. I was going to join you. Uh, um, a work obligation took me out, and I think I, I dodged got a away bullet with it. <laughs> on that one. Like I sent you the message afterwards, it's like, you got away with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm interested. I'm interested in where a film fails sometimes as, as much as I'm interested to see where a film has succeeded. It had a pretty good director and he directed Life, which I think is a, is a great little yeah. scary horror movie. So we know that the director can deliver. So it can only be studio interference trying to chop and change this and to make it into something that it didn't want to be. I think there might be an, an element of Leto interference as well in this. Which... It does feel that he's brought something to the set that doesn't quite work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've got. I don't have much faith in him as a as a as an actor. You know, and he's turned out more poor performances. You know, he's he's not even the in the worst of the Joker file. He is just the worst Joker ever. Yeah. You know, he's not Cesar Romero's Joker is a better Joker than Jared Leto's. But I don't know if again if that's him or or, or David Ayer. Perhaps he just needs a, yeah. a stronger director. So the, I've got a feeling, and I know you've sort of mentioned this, that um, you know all the Spider-Man elements of the, that we saw in the trailer aren't there. My theory is, is the studio got scared, realised they got a bomb on the hand, tried to cut it into something, tried to cut out as many, as many references as they could, maybe. It, does that make sense? But then you're talking about this awful uh, uh, ending. It just sounds like a, a, a huge mess. And uh, yeah. as I said earlier, these these are the reasons that that um, that films fail, that, that that people get bored of certain genres because they see the trash and uh, you, there's too much trash. The quality gets affected by it. Now, another example of a film that didn't quite make the grade is the latest entry in the Halloween franchise. We covered the review of this film and then the following week we did a deep dive into the whole franchise next week's compilation episode i'll include that deep dive into the whole halloween franchise because it's one of my favorite deep dives of the year but in the meantime here's what i thought about the more recent entry in the halloween franchise halloween ends andy as ever has been doing the lord's work going forward into a world of mystery and the unknown is it going to be any good is it going to be a piece of rot I leave that up to Andy because he's a braver man than I am. What have we got this week, Andy? I know you've got a couple of films that actually I really, really want to see. Uh, well, we'll start with Halloween Ends. As I said, you've got a couple of films that I really want to see. And then you've got Halloween Ends. It's Halloween. We're going to have a good time tonight. The Boogeyman's coming. You're going to Time to put the boogeyman to bed. Over the four years since the end of the last film, Halloween Kills, the town of Haddonfield has lived in the shadow of the terrible events of that night. The myth of Michael Myers permeates the town's consciousness, and with his name being uttered in hushed whispers whenever anything goes wrong. During that time, the town also gained another notorious name to add to its killer list, that of Corey Cunningham, played by Rowan Campbell. 
a babysitter who accidentally killed the child he was watching. But as the fourth anniversary of Michael's last appearance approaches, events play out that draw Corey, Laurie, Alison, Laurie's granddaughter, and indeed Michael together for one bloody showdown. From the start, this film lost me. There's an opening scene that starts poorly with an illogical jump scare that sees a kid somehow leaping out from a plain wall. Yes, the camera angle makes it a jump scare for us, the audience, but for his mother who has stood right there, it made no sense. This level of dodgy contrivance and continuity ignorance then continued when a death that should have been powerful and shocking is executed in such a manner that the audience that I watched it with all laughed out loud. A fall from a large height that seems to ignore a banister that would have blocked the fall. Again, some continuity editor should have picked up on this and maybe suggested damaging the banister. From that point onwards, it was clear that this was not going to be a film I was going to enjoy. And that proved to be the case. This is less of a Halloween film. The story tries to play on the idea that the town itself creates monsters and is corrupt within itself. But it does this so poorly that any and all impact is gone. For the first half of the film, the entire cast are bland stereotypes. It's not always a bad thing in horror, and indeed many slasher movies have fun with these templates, but this film actually seems to think it's more serious than it actually is. Jamie Lee Curtis is dreadful for the first half. She's seemingly phoning the part in, and the character of Laurie that we were presented with in the previous films has been all but erased. In the latter half, she comes alive again, and we see something of what we could have had all along, but it's too late to salvage the film. There's a huge focus on Corey throughout, and it feels like a script from another project was reverse engineered to tag Michael Myers into it. And given it was supposed to be the final chapter of his tale, having him be little more than a minor support up until the final moments seems like a bit of a bait and switch. Whilst Corey's journey was interesting on the surface level, it isn't really given breathing space, as halfway through the film it appears that David Gordon Green suddenly remembered he was supposed to be directing a Halloween film and fast tracks everything from that point. Thus, Corey's character changes suddenly and unconvincingly, whilst at the same time the relationship he has with Alison feels flat. It lacks any chemistry at all. As the final act came around, the film chugs to a limp ending that only made me more happy that finally this franchise can be laid to rest. Much in the same way that the Star Wars sequels felt disjointed, with events of each episode seemingly inconsequential to the one before or after, so too is this recent Halloween trilogy. However, unlike Star Wars, this trilogy was delivered by the same director, and when reflecting on how much of a mess kills and ends were, it only makes me further believe that there was never any intention to make another film after 2018's entry, which does, admittedly, stand up quite well as a final entry in the saga itself. No doubt, five to ten years from now, we'll get another new timeline for the Halloween franchise. But in the meantime, I'm simply happy it has finally ended. I was going to join you for this one, but uh, circumstances meant that I couldn't. It, it wasn't really a missed opportunity because I've not seen any of this particular run on Halloween. So it's probably for the best that I, I didn't join you by the sounds of things. If I'm going to watch any of the Halloween movies, uh, would you recommend seeing the first one of this trilogy? Yes, I'd say that the first one, I didn't appreciate the first time I watched it, but on my recent rewatch, I appreciate it more. We'll talk about this more next week, because I think next week on the deep dive, we'll, we'll explore the Halloween franchise as a whole. And I'll pick out from my rewatch which ones I think are worth people revisiting. And that's it for this week. Hope you're having a great festive time. 
We'll see you again next week when we run down the five lists that I want to add to the list of films that we at Film File recommend from 2022. Until then, get on the streaming services because all of these five films that have been mentioned today are all available out there to watch. Have yourselves a great week. See you in seven days. Thank you.